Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all? I hope that you have all been well. I hope that life has been treating you just fine. And in these ever-changing times that we're all living in at the moment, and it seems that you go to bed in one world and you wake up and it's another world. The times are changing so quickly. But in all of it, I think that we must remain steadfast and not to lose our balance. While the sands are shifting, while the winds are blowing, it's so important to have that center within us that is calm and that we can find some form of sanctuary to all the craziness out there because it doesn't really matter what's going on it will always be going on what's important is how we deal with it as long as we can keep ourselves sane and healthy and happy that's the most important thing and let us let things go Because when we hold on to things, even if it's bad memories or bad times, it's a burden. And I found that in my life, especially, that things happen and people make mistakes. We make mistakes. But through healing and through forgiveness, we can actually set ourselves free for a better life. Now, I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest today, who is the very, very knowledgeable and interesting James Palmer. James is a SCAR integration specialist. His work includes neurostructural bodywork for pain management, well-being and performance. Now, SCAR integration creates space movement and flow in the body by working directly with the scars themselves. Other issues created by the trauma that originally caused the scars are also treated. Now, James will explain all of that in detail. It was the onset of serious back pain when he was 13 and then chronic fatigue syndrome when he was 20 that led James to rethink his entire life and career. By going through a period of illness himself, which limited how he could engage with the world, he found a way of moving on. And by having an active lifestyle, it has now inspired 
many other people along the way. He has also trained widely in Western and Asian styles of movement and manual therapy, including the anatomy in motion approach to biomechanics and nearly two decades in-depth training in Chinese martial arts and energy arts, as well as shiatsu, qigong, and tuina. Today, he shares his wonderful story. Welcome, dear James. Hello. Hello. How are we? (laughs) I am very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure and thank you for agreeing to come on, James. My goodness, that was some introduction to the most fascinating work that you do. (laughs) I sound quite impressive, don't I? Yes, you do. (laughs) It's all a lie. Take a little bow now, take a little bow. (laughs) (laughs) There's no one to see. Um, (laughs) So how are you this fine evening? Yeah, good, thank you. Enjoying the... The delightful weather in London and the uh, relaxing environment. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. And how is the weather in London? Um, kind of rainy and not quite autumn yet. Um, yeah, it's a little bit um, umbrella weather, but not coat quite yet, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how it is. Um, we have to catch carrying our cars or wherever we're going we have to have at least four changes of clothes when you're in London and in England because you never quite know what you're going to come across so I've got bags full of just-in-case clothes and just-in-case shoes and people laugh at me but you know I'm always prepared. Well my mother thinks that umbrellas basically scare off the rain so if you have an umbrella then you won't get rained on. (laughs) It just won't rain. And if you forget <laughs> your umbrella, then it will rain. That's very funny. That's a, a little bit like um, if you want it to rain, wash your car because yeah. it will <laughs> rain for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> now, James, thank you so much for coming on this evening. And as I said, you know, your work is absolutely fascinating, but we've got to begin somewhere. So tell me and the listeners out there where did this journey of yours how did all of this begin ah, well I started off um basically an acad- as an academic um and through that whole time was just sitting a lot because you do you sit at a desk and you write or you read or whatever you're doing um, and occasionally I'd sit in the library and look out the window and think oh I wish I was an acupuncturist um, but didn't do anything about it and had an academic career for about 10 years of training and then a bit of teaching. Um, and when that came to its close, I needed, I wanted a new direction. Um, and actually, um, it was my Pilates teacher at the time who, she was a bit of a witch in a kind of good way. Um, and she, I went into the studio one day and she looked at me and said, you should train to be a Pilates teacher just out of the blue, completely out of the blue. And I ignored it because it's cra- it was a crazy idea. Um, and then she forgot about it. And about six months later, she did exactly the same thing. And she said, you should train. You should train to be a Pilates teacher. You'd be very good. Um, and so when it came to switching careers, I, I did. I, I moved to Holland 
um, and went and trained um, uh, the studio Pilates teacher with all the original equipment. Um, and that was how I moved into working with bodies. And then when I moved back to England, I trained in the body work. Um, but it was really through that, through that kind of, um, yeah, I don't know how you describe it, but it wasn't on my agenda really. And it just kind of dropped out the sky and then it was the thing to do. It didn't make it straightforward and easy, but you know, it, it just kind of evolved. It just happened naturally. Now, you say that it was actually when you were 13 years old, when you had serious back pain and then mm. the chronic fatigue syndrome that yeah. came along when you were 20, yeah. that made yeah. you actually yeah, rethink your career yeah. and your life. Tell me a little bit about that. So the, the back pain started when I was going down to um, see the Phantom of the Opera um, one one year with my family and just out of nowhere my back started hurting and it was a thing for me for about 10 or 15 years um, especially for my teenage years and my early 20s it was, a, it was really bad um, I remember when I was at university I'd often be lying on the floor and you know unable to do things and then then I got the chronic fatigue and so I was a bit of a mess really um, mm-hmm. And fortunately, that kind of calmed itself down. Um, I just rested, basically was just using rest and waiting, waiting it out. Um, and they calmed down to the extent that, um, that I, could, I could do things. So when I did my first degree, um, I was really basically just sleeping and working, and that was it. Um, there wasn't much else I was able to do. But by the time I got to my second one, um, I was—I had much more energy. I started running and cycling, and I did triathlon and all these crazy things that crazy people do. Um, and so, by the time I was, mm, I was I probably early twenties. Mm. Um, I was—I was very active, um, still with absolutely no thought of doing it as as anything more than a pastime. Um, but yeah, it was kind of that pivot around my time as an undergraduate. Um, now, when this back pain started um, at the age of 13, what brought it on? And thereafter, the chronic fatigue syndrome, was there a specific diagnosis? No, or? I mean, so the, with the back thing, no, it just happened literally sitting in the car on the way to the Phantom of the Opera. And that mm. was the cause. Um, so thank you, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there was there was no there was no kind of diagnosis made. I mean, doctors then were like, "Oh, it's just back pain. Take paracetamol." Um, mm. And also, actually, with the chronic fatigue, I was I had it at the stage where I was accused by the doctor of making it up so that I could get out of doing my work for my degree. Um, there was no understanding of it at all. Um, but fortunately, my tutor at university had had chronic fatigue himself. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was very helpful. Um, it's a very misunderstood um, disease, I suppose, because yeah. um, people don't understand it. But it's a very real thing. Yeah, it's it, yeah. <laughs> I was. I mean, when I was twenty, twenty-one, I was walking like I was in my eighties. 
Mm. Um, mm. I would have I'd have to rest after ten minutes. There was a period, actually, you forget these things. There was a period when I would, after I'd walked upstairs, I would have to rest for a bit. Yeah, because the act of going upstairs was too tiring. Mm. Um, and how is it now? Do you oh, still suffer from it, or has it no, left? No, it's pretty much gone. So um, this yesterday, I. Um, did two hours training in the morning, then walked to the gym and then came back. And um, today I was out and about training in the, in the morning. No, I mean, I used for quite a while, not mm. for quite a while, I would have a thing like, you know, with rechargeable batteries, mm. the way at least they used to die very suddenly. So if you yeah. had your normal batteries, you'd kind of get a bit where you could persuade them to carry on for a little while if you wiggled them. But with mm-hmm. the rechargeable ones, once they reached the end, oh, that was it. Um, and I had that for a very long time and maybe still do. Um, but if I'm really tired, then that's it. There's, there's no more. I need to sleep. But it happens so rarely now. Um, it was one of the things that got me into the Chinese stuff, the Chinese energy arts, mm-hmm. way of managing that and trying to actually do something about it. Um, because so I, I know there will be people out there who will say, well, how did he get over that? Um, mostly waiting. Do you know, mm-hmm. it was mostly just my, my um, university tutor had this nice phrase, which was, you just have to learn to paint on a smaller canvas. If you need yeah. to sleep 12 hours of a, in the day, then your canvas is 12 hours. It's not 16 or 20 hours. And you just have to paint on what you've got. Uh, and that was very helpful because I, there was another guy I knew who, at the same time who also had chronic fatigue. And he, was, he would kind of go on long cycle rides and then be in bed for a week and just was not adapting to the reality of his situation. Um, whereas I kind of just bit the bullet and accepted that, okay, I can't do these things. Um, I need to go to bed at eight o'clock or nine o'clock. I need to sleep solidly for 10 hours Um, or whatever it was. It went through various stages and gradually got better and better. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's important to recognise that people say we are limitless and we are. We are limitless, but within the scope of our body, we have to respect it. I think this is really important, is that most of us don't really respect these little niggles or big niggles, in fact, Mm. that can then lead to even bigger things. And I think that's what's important. I like what your, is it your lecturer or your university um, tutor. tutor said, and it's really at this point, you know, life is a sense, in a sense, you know, a series of chapters. And at that particular chapter in your life, that's all you could do. Yeah. And we can beat ourselves over the head and blame ourselves because we can't do this and we want to do this. And life is all about people rushing, 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 busy, being busy. Um, but actually, to find serenity, I think you have to really accept, there's a certain acceptance, isn't there, James, of a situation that you're mm. in in a particular time in life? Yeah, sometimes you can change things and other times you can't. Or, or other times the only thing you can change is how you respond to what's happening to you. Yeah. 
Um, and if, if you have a situation like that where your health is just not going to change, it's not like suddenly, it's just not going to disappear tomorrow because you've decided that you're going, you're going to be over it. Um, you, can, you can either fight against that in a very negative way um, and by denying it and by doing things without wisdom that just trigger, trigger you and make you worse. Or you can accept that and then just decide what your priorities are. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's it, it's very true. And I speak to someone the other day and um, she was a friend of mine who said to me, well, you know, I'm really angry that I have this pain. And I was told a very long time ago, because I have chronic pain as well, I was told you have to make friends with your pain. Yeah. And it was one of the most difficult things um, to hear at such a young age as well. But yeah. it's the only thing that sort of kept me sane, in effect, because that's what you have to do, because you have to make friends with it. You have to know that when you've overdone something, it's there to tell you you need to just slow down now. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult t sort of headmaster or headmistress to have there in your life, but it is as it is, and and you have to accept, as I said, yourself in your entirety. Otherwise, you can't heal. And and this is why I find your work so fascinating, James. Is that apart from the other things which we'll go into, is that you are actually a specialist in scars and. I would suspect this is scars on a physical level, but also on a much deeper level. Yeah, so I I work with the physical tissue, um, mm -hmm. but I have you uh, you can't do this kind of work for more than a few months without people telling you that it's changed things for them emotionally, even though that's not. It's not, you know, I'm not using, let's call them emotional techniques. I'm not using techniques which are specifically designed for working with people's emotions or how they feel. They're techniques which work with the physical body, but we're all a piece. And mm -hmm. so when you change how things feel physically, then it has a knock-on effect. Um, especially when you've got um, scars that are caused by trauma, um, whether it's being bitten by a dog or a traumatic C-section, unplanned C-section, um, or any, any, any of these sorts of things that will create scars, they tend to be events where they're quite turning points for people. Um, even if it's a fairly small turning point, you know, you cut your hand badly with a knife. Well, that's not going to completely, for most people, change your world, but still, it's going to be significant to you for quite a while. Um, you may not be able to use your hand. You may have to give up a hobby for a while. There are all sorts of little knock-ons. And then for bigger scars, like um, spinal surgery or you know, some of the like second emergency C-section or all sorts of like, cancer scars, um, there's often a much bigger story tied to it. And so the change in the physical body definitely has a, a shift for makes a shift for people. Um, emotionally and sometimes it's really obvious so sometimes mm -hmm. you get tears um, which is fine you know I'm, I'm, I'm happy with people crying um, I tend to make them cry or fall asleep which is <laughs> not oh, sure that's entirely good um, 
but you sometimes get that visible um, shift in people's emotional state. At other times, it's completely under the surface. Um, and then they'll come back a month or two months later and, and say, you know, I was really not sure about retiring. I really didn't want to let go. And then after the last session, I felt like it was time. Um, and just just things that you know were not visible to them at the time and just something changed. Um, so yeah, that definitely does happen. I think it's like, I, as I said to you before, uh, James and I, for the listeners out there, were talking earlier about rolfing, which is a similar sort of principle, I think. It is. And it is in fact, sorry to interrupt you, but yes, the okay. woman who developed the scar work I do was mm-hmm. one of Ida Rolf's last pupils. Um, oh. She is a rolfer, Sharon Wheeler, whose who's work I do. Mm-hmm. Um, is a rolfer and um, she the principles of the scar and the bone work that she does are the same as rolfing right okay that makes sense now and um, just a little bit James for people out there who um, are thinking now does it have to be a physical scar how does a physical scar um, affect the person emotionally Tell us a little bit about that um, mind-body connection. <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> the bottom line is I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have a solid answer of how that works. Um, I mean, there is a, there is a level of... Um, so and maybe, maybe little examples will, will, will help. They're completely anonymous, so no, no clients are being exposed. Um, I had a client once who had um, cut her head on French windows that her husband had left open. Um, And she didn't realise until I worked on the scar that it had actually been a barrier between them. Um, That at some level she had blamed him. And when I just worked on the scar and it softened and became a little bit less visible, that emotion came up and then dissipated. so you can get that kind of thing. You can get, um, if scars are caused in really traumatic situations, um, you have a ter- terrible car crash um, or you're attacked in a horrible way. You have like um, street violence or an animal attacks you or something like that. The, the, or knife crime, um, thinking of where I live. Um, those are very traumatic events. Um, or you get it in war as well. I mean, I don't see so many people where I'm based, but easily if I were practicing in a different part of London, I could do. Um, mm. Those scars caused by warfare or by knife crime or by whatever other, other traumas are going on, they, there's an awful lot going on at the same time. The scar is the tip of the iceberg. Um, anything, well, not anything, but things that cause a significant scar don't just cause a scar, a physical scar. They do more. Um, so if you knock your head and you have a scar down the side of your cheek, you've knocked your jaw as well. You've knocked your skull. You've, you've boshed your brain. Um, it's not just the fact that you have this thin, centimeter, few centimetres long scar. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not just scar work, which is why I call it scar integration. Um, because it's, it's not just about the scar. Um, 
the scar is the kind of um, handle that you hold on to. It's the focus point, as it were. Um, but it has a whole story going on around it um, of the original impact, whatever caused it originally. Um, so that may have, you know, you may have, I don't know, um, been, you've fallen off, you've had a bike accident, you fell off, you knocked your head and you kind of gave yourself whiplash and got a big road rash, big sort of um, rash down the side of your leg from skidding along the pavement. Um, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Um, and cyclists tend to be very um, gung-ho, and so they would ignore the road rash. They'd ignore that big scarring down the leg most of the time, um, and they would ignore the whiplash, and they would ignore all this other stuff. But still, it's quite a big, a big thing to fall off with that much force. Um, yes. I mean, for example, when you think about scars, when people talk about scars and whether they be visible or invisible, because I think we are all scarred to some extent. Each of us that lives in this lifetime has our own scars, whether they be emotional or physical or spiritual, yeah. whatever. And what's interesting is as a body worker like yourself is seeing this connection because I'm a firm believer that you can't treat one part of the body and completely think that it's not going to affect every aspect of that human being oh, because it's so interconnected. And I, I often wonder whether scars on another level are sort of in a way linked, cross-linked through each of our atoms in our body. And everything that we've ever experienced so far in life is somehow intrinsically connected. Every person that we have met, every word we have spoken, everything that's been said to us, every person that's touched us, every person that we have touched, I think that leaves a mark on us in some way. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, just at the physical level, you get, um, in, if you get like a number of scars in the same area, so say, for example, you have a knee problem, you have, um, have it looked at, okay, we need to do a surgery, you do a knee surgery, and then you also manage to drop a glass on your foot. You've got a bunch of scars in the same area, and they start to create pulls through the tissue. It's a little bit like with jumpers. If you have a very nice cashmere jumper, if you start darning little bits of it and putting a big patch mm. in another place, the more of those you put the, put through the, the sweater, uh, they're going to start to change the way it hangs and the way it sits. And even if they're quite subtle, you know, you kind of put them underneath the armpit or a bit no one can really see, they're still going to pull the whole thing. And so they start to create these lines of tension between each other. Um, it... it demonstrably happens at the physical level. I mean, you, you know, you, with certain bodies, I can go, okay, this is the line of pull, and you can prod it a bit, and the person you're working on can feel that line of connection. Um, but yeah, I think it also happens um, in other ways. Um, because that would explain when you have your clients that are crying or sleeping or having these realisations, it 
must be something that's stored in the body as a memory or as an injury or as an experience or as an event. Yeah. I, I want. I mean, what this, do you think this, about that? This become this. What I'm about to say is kind of speculative and maybe entirely false. But what you often notice physically is, say, um, thinking of one where a woman uh, uh, fell on her chin and when she was nine and bashed the jaw and it kind of got stuck in a slightly strange way. Um, and that pattern, of, that particular kind of direction of the energy that had gone into her, like physical kinetic energy, um, was still there 50 years later, 45 years later. And when I was working on it, I could feel the way that the tissue wanted to pull. And that pattern was still stuck in there. Um, and as I was holding it and working on it, it kind of replayed so you could feel, you know, you know that bit in Lord of the Rings where um, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are tracking the hobbits? Um, don't know, you know, but you, you, they, Do you know, this is a story about, hold that thought, James, mm -hmm. The Lord of the Rings, I was made to read it at school. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I did not like it, I have to say, and therefore I totally blocked it. So you will have to tell me about it because <laughs> it was one of those things, you know, when you're forced as a child yeah, to, to yeah. read it at school and then you just never want to hear about it again. But now it's relevant, so please do... Um, so actually, it's a, it's a scene in the film. It's a scene mm. in the film. So they're tracking the hobbits who've been stolen by the evil orcs. Um, and Aragorn, who um, is a very good tracker, kind of looks at the footprints in the floor and on the floor and said two hobbits ran off towards the wood they were pursued and you know he can he can from the tracks on the on the floor he can say what was going on or Sherlock Holmes you know the the man was six foot two tall with hobnail boots and he strode across and he, you can read mm. what happened from what's left um, and you get that often when you're working on scars you can feel the direction it was knocked in it will, replay, it will replay that trauma and then it will often rewind and set it back itself back to where it should be. But often when you do that, people get flashbacks. Um, and when I was doing this particular one I was thinking of, she suddenly said, oh, I can see what I was wearing. I can smell, I can smell it. I can smell Imagine it. that. That's remarkable. And, and so those memories mm. were somehow, I, I don't know how, but somehow they were part of the package of of that physical movement that, which had left its trace in both a small scar but actually it was more her, the position that her jaw was in um and as i worked on that and, and untangled it a bit then the emotional layers of or memory layers of that came back as well and dissipated now when you're working um what are you actually it's hands-on. Yes. And is it a form of massage? Um, or what is it? So weird. for people out there, I mean, I know yeah. what it is, but for people <laughs> out there um, who are curious and yeah. want to know more, give us an, an example of a session of, say, for example, your client with the jaw problem. Yeah. How does that begin? Um, so with that one, you, I, I almost always start with the scar because that's your first clue. 
the first kind of um, thing in the treasure hunt, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you work, you you kind of brush around the scar and just try and get a sense of what it needs. How is it? What's where's it stuck? What's the problem? Um, is it that the the actual physical incision itself is really tight? That can often happen. It's often with C-sections. You get really tight, tight scars that are just pulling everything towards them. Or is it stuck? Or has the tissue been knocked into the wrong place? Or you kind of, you work and you feel, what is the particular thing that this scar needs? That I need to do here or need to get to change? Uh, and then you just very simply go in and see if you can get that to happen. <laughs> so if it's really tight, there are techniques we have pressing and twisting and so on that just will tease that tightness out um or we have techniques for if you've got um like a bit of tissue that i had a woman who was trampled by a horse when she was riding and she had this big hoof mark in her shin and in that case it was all just squashed down onto the bone um and so so it would be then a question of trying to get some space into there trying to get it to decompress a little bit um and then she's taking that one because it's quite a nice example the ho- the horse's hoof had hit her shin he had pushed down some of the flesh down towards her ankle and then the area above where the skin was quite swollen because the fluid was through her leg and so we did two or three sessions um and managed to get the the bit where the, the divot was where the hoof had gone to fill out and be the same level as the rest of the skin it changed color because it was sort of shiny green color sort of greeny white because there was just no fluid movement through it it was all squashed down um and so we managed to get that to kind of plump up so that it was the same as the rest of the leg and then i managed to move the tissue back up and back into place that had got squashed down towards the ankle and then finally, I did some work to get the fluid moving through the rest of the leg. Um, and the last time I saw her, which was just for like upkeep for her shoulders, um, I couldn't actually find the scar initially. Um, I had to double take because it had just, it was just not visible anymore. It was still there. And if, when I got the angle of the light right, I could see it, but it had been really noticeable before. Um, and so it's really, it's really individual. That's one of the things I like about it, that, you know, you're, you're working scars often in the same kind of place, like the abdomen or the knee or the foot or wherever it is. But each one has its own story. And so there's no way you can go in with a one-size-fits-all approach. You really have to go in and read the, read the scar, read what, what happened to the body, and then just do your best to and untangle it um, and you skip back and forward from the actual scar itself and when I say scar I mean both the incision so the cut mm-hmm. which is the visible bit um, if there is one because there isn't always um, and also the scarring underneath the skin um, which is often much more of an issue than the, the cut itself the cut is usually the smallest part um, or at least the easiest to deal with. Um, it's all the other stuff that, that is more tricky, especially with 
keyhole surgeries. People always say, oh, it's just keyhole. It was nothing. It's nothing. And I, I kind of sigh inwardly because they're not nothing. Um, you yeah. know, they're much less likely to get infected. They're much better in many ways. But you're still going in and they're still scarring. Um, and it's just harder to find because it's less visible. <laughs> yeah. Very true. And that's, that was my next question, actually. What about people that are in chronic pain or who have issues, I don't know, say with their legs, with their arms, with their spine, but mm. there is no scarring. It is just a just, it is a pain. Yeah. How do you deal with something like that? Well, um, if there really is no scarring that's relevant, which, which does happen, I mean, I, I don't actually have any really significant scars. Um, I have three on my hands from defrosting the freezer yesterday, but they're not significant. They'll be gone by the weekend. Um, but yeah, I had really bad pain. So that was clearly nothing to do with scars because I didn't have them. Um, sometimes I can do it with my other work, with the, um, the Bowen work. Um, because that's focusing much more on the dynamics of the spine. And sometimes by changing that, you can release pain. But other times I would refer them on to somebody else. It just depends. You know, I'll have a look and have a try and work it out. But sometimes it's not my territory. Sometimes mm -hmm. I, I just don't have the right tools for the job. Or I might be able to do something, but it would take me a lot of time. And the results wouldn't be that good. And I would rather the person went to somebody who had better skills for it. You know, if I if I go and I I find actually, look, I, I don't know what to do here. Um, it's not responding to any of the things that I'm I'm throwing at it. Then I often I'll say I, I work in a great practice in Shepherd's Bush um, with some fantastic acupuncturists. And I will I will often send my clients to them. Um, especially when it's kind of strange, un unexplained pains that mm -hmm. don't make sense in my model. It's not at all to say that I don't believe that they're there, but every therapist has a way of cutting the cake or cutting yeah. the sandwiches. And some of us make little triangles and some of us make little squares and some of us like kind of big pieces of cake or, you know, all sorts of different ways of cutting it. And they're not wrong. They're just different. Um, and I'm quite good at cutting the cake in my way of cutting the cake. Yeah, and if that true. is not giving you a piece that's working for you, then I will get someone else to do it. Yeah. Um, because we can't, no one can do everything. The people who think they can do everything are unbearable because yeah. they, they, never, they never admit when they, when, they're, when, they, when they can't help you. And yeah, so it was so refreshing actually to hear what, you were saying just now is that um, you, everyone has their forte and um, if you know your forte what your forte is and you specialize in that uh, I think that is rather humble and I think that is the sign of a true therapist because it's otherwise it's sort of you know a jack of all trades a master of none so to speak. So the thing is, my stuff is is quite broad in one respect, mm. um, but in another respect, it's very very simple. All I'm trying to do is create more movement, more flow, and more space in the body. So I don't really work from 
any complicated diagnostic, like in Chinese medicine or various other kinds of approaches where you have a particular diagnostic model. And that's fantastic. I think it's great. I mean, I my first body work style that I studied was Shiatsu. And Shiatsu uses a diagnostic approach in, in that sense of you're looking for particular patterns and things. But for me, just I, I like that simplicity. I like that really almost basic um okay, this bit's not moving, it should be moving, let's get it to move. Yeah. Um, and But then that has a big scope. So I, I, a lot of my stuff that I tend to work on is scars that are affecting people's movement. Um, it's not just that, but, you know, it's kind of all abdominal and pelvic scars, orthopedic scars, so ankles and knees and hips and elbows and spines and wrists and shoulders and all that sort of stuff. And then the head. Um, and so all of those places, there's a lot of there's a lot of the body involved there. Basically, all of the body, um, and people may just need the scar work and a little bit of I don't know something in like abdominal scars. Yeah, um, do the scar itself. But often you need to change the pelvis and get the rib cage and skull to, to shift as well, because when you get a C-section or any abdominal scar, really it will start to change how the pelvis is sitting because you've got tightness in there from the scars that you didn't have before. Um, and so it can often be subtle and it can often not be a problem. That's the other thing, that not all scars are actually a lively problem. They might be in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time, but they're not necessary at the time. But they still may well change how the pelvis is moving. Um, and then that can make back pain or that can change how your rib cage moves and then you start to get shoulder pain. Or that makes your shoulder problem worse and the fact that you're working on the computer eight hours a day or 10 hours a day means that suddenly your shoulder gets really bad because you still got that challenge from the, from the computer, but you've suddenly got a change in the way that your spine and rib cage are moving, which stops, makes your shoulder blade move differently. So a lot of the different trainings I've done all feed in kind of undo, unseen, unannounced into what I'm doing. Um, because often I'll just be sitting there tapping your, <laughs> tapping, tap, do this on your ankle for a while. Um, and, and so it looks like, um, looks like nothing's going on, but I'm actually thinking, okay, well, is your, is your ankle joint moving properly? How is your talus? affect moving is that how is that going to be affecting your knee and your pelvis and then i'll check what's going on so it's all kind of underneath um, but the actual any one given moment is very very simple and i just like that simplicity <laughs> i absolutely love your work i think it's so fascinating how everything is connected with everything yeah. this is the thing and i and i love it because it is something very dear to my heart, this type of work, because I've had I've had shiatsu, I've had um, the Boeing technique, and they're all fantastic therapies. And it makes me wonder, do you use all of those techniques um, and have combined it into the SCAR integration work? Or do you sometimes just do the Boeing technique and sometimes just shiatsu? 
Um, it just depends what the person needs. Um, okay. I always think of three layers in, in when I'm working with a person. Mm-hmm. One is the actual scar tissue itself. Um, and if you can get the scar tissue to change, then already the person has benefited. Even if you do nothing, nothing else other than just the scar tissue, you can feel easily. That will start to change things. Um, and then the second layer is the rehabilitation of the, of the area. So say you have, let's go back to the lady who bashed her chin when she fell over. Um, mm-hmm. You have a little scar underneath your chin. People always, always downplay them. They always say, oh, yeah, it's tiny, it's tiny. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, it's not a very big scar, but you've, you've done it in just about the most significant place you could possibly do it. Um, mm-hmm. So you have the scar itself. Then you have the impact on the area. So in that case, jaw and skull, maybe neck as well. So they're three really important places because they will affect your how your body, if you, if you start to get a restriction in your neck and have to hold your head one way, it's going to start to change how your whole body is lined up because your, your, your brain wants to keep your eyes looking forward. And so it will basically reorganize pretty much anything else to get your eyes looking straight forward um, because you need that or you fall over. The balance goes to pieces. Um, and... Um, so what was, I've lost my track. My, my So tell me, when did you have your calling, so to speak? Oh, um, well, I think it was, I don't know. I mean, when I was teaching Pilates, I always used to most enjoy people to, working with people who were injured. And I was very good at it. Um, he says it with all humility. There were well, one must, not, one must say sometimes. Well, there were things that I was not so good at. <laughs> I got bored by all the very advanced work. Um, and I must confess, I forgot most of it by the end. Um, <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Your secret is safe with me and I don't know how many thousands of others now. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the injury stuff I would really enjoy doing. And it was doing that, I think, that I realised they wanted different tools um, mm-hmm. because Pilates works really well for certain things. But for other things, it's just not... It's, this, it's the whole cutting the cake thing again. Um, mm. If you are hypermobile and have just had a baby and a C-section and you've got diastasis recti and you're kind of a bit floppy and, and falling to pieces... Pilates is just about the best thing you can do. Um, as long as your teacher's good and you're, you know, you've got the right equipment to work with. But it's fantastic for pulling everything back together again. But if you've got, oh, I don't know, if you've got a problem with your jaw, Pilates will not help you. It just, it just doesn't work the jaw. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, if you've got a problem with your coccyx, Pilates will not deal with that. And so I wanted some tools that would help me work with those things that I, I couldn't, couldn't affect. Um, and it was that that got me into it. And then I kind of jumped on the water slide and whee, all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but you do Pilates. I've tried Pilates and maybe I tried with the wrong teacher. Um, but it was excruciatingly painful. 
And oh, well, that's not good. <laughs> no, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm never doing this again. This is just dreadful. But then I rem- remember thinking, maybe it was just the teacher at the end of the day, because I'd heard such good things about it. And I've had such, you know, good feedback from people that have done it. But I suppose as with everything, James, like you said, for some people it's this and for some people it's that. It's it's and it's it's different. But well, also the, the first Pilates class I went to was so bad I left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it just was so boring for me that I just I couldn't stay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get it. I get no the, the Pilates I did was actually um so Joe Pilates taught um, a number of people, but the woman who took over his studio in New York was called Romana Krzyzanowska. And I was taught by three women who, who studied directly with Romana Krzyzanowska and were chosen by her to teach. So it's a very, very, very direct line back to Joe Pilates. Um, that's, that's rather excellent. It's quite fun, isn't it? And it works with all the studio equipment. Um, there are a number, like maybe 15 or even 20 different kinds of apparatus from the mat with all the reformers and all the sorts of other stuff. Um, and so when you have that range of tools, you can actually work with a lot, lot wider range of people. Um, because if people come in and they're very injured or there are problems that mean that getting on the mat and doing stuff on the floor is difficult, then you don't want to put them on the floor. You want to put them somewhere where they'll be supported and the equipment will actually help them to, to get into their body and for things to improve. Um, so it really does depend on the, the training that the person has had and, the, um, and also the equipment they have access to. Because even with the best training, if you don't have any equipment, there's only so much you could do. Yeah, very true you've got to have sort of the right tools for the job but you also do um the asian styles yes of movement um tell us a little bit about that <laughs> the, the, the laugh is because it's very difficult for me just to say a little bit about it because i get too excited and start going on forever be excited be excited <laughs> we want excited um so I study the um, three of the internal martial arts, Tai Chi, which most people have heard of, and then another one called Singi, and then the third one called Bagua. Um, the one I study do most is Singi, um, and Tai Chi I do the least. Um, and they, they're just, they're, they're so sophisticated and clever. Um, I just, I love, the, I love what they do to my body. And the other thing that I was just saying to my teacher this morning, is that by doing that work on myself, it teaches me how to do it on other people. Um, so I'm doing a, a Qigong set at the moment, which works a lot with the spine. I'm getting the spine to move in particular ways. And not just the spine, the, all the other bones as well, so the hands and the feet and the legs. Um, uh-huh. So by doing that work on myself, I can get the things to change in me. And so when I'm faced with somebody coming along and they've, say, cut their hand badly on a knife and they have the scar for me to work on, I know what a hand, how a hand should move or is capable of moving because I have been trying to do it in my training. And even when bits of me don't work perfectly, 
um, still I have, a, I have an ideal of, of how the joint should work and move. And so the training I find enormously helpful um, in terms of m- me understanding what I want to get out of the body. Um, so with my mysterious cut hand that I made up, I would work on the scar, but then I would pulse all the joints. So you take all the joints and you open and close them very, very slightly, and you, you pull fluid through them so that the whole hand kind of gets re-moisturized from the inside. But we do that in our training. We do that in the, the Chinese internal training. Um, and so I know what that feels like to do it to myself. And so I can do it to someone else as well. So I find it enormously instructive. Often it's more helpful than courses. <laughs> Not all courses, there are some fantastic ones, but it's really instructive. Um, or it does a lot of work with the, the soft tissue, with the muscles and the fascia, twisting it and stretching it and compressing it. Um, and so you again, you can take that from your own body and know what you want the other person's body to be able to do. And even if it doesn't happen all at once, you at least have a, a, an ideal, you at least have a method of getting there. That is something that is very interesting, actually, James, because I always find this, that if you can feel it yourself and if you have been through it, whether physically um, or on another level, Mm. you pretty much can sense it in another person. And that's what I think makes you a fantastic therapist, because if you have walked that journey, you can take people there and to wherever it is. You also know when it's not happened. Yeah. The thing that I like about some of the styles I work with is that you have very definite feedback. No, that didn't work. That mm. wasn't successful. Um, yeah. And although it can be a little bit terrifying sometimes when you, you've tried to get a change and it's not happened the way you wanted it to, at least you know it hasn't happened. At least you're not kidding yourself. That, oh, yes, that will be fine now. When, no, I needed this to change. And until this changes, the body will not settle down. Um, and so having that kind of reality check of, no, I know what it feels like for a joint to pulse, and this is not happening in this person's wrist. Um, rather than just kind of going through the motions, you actually then have to think, well, why is it not happening? Is there, some, is there something else that I need to do that might get it to work? And it may take two or three sessions. It might, might not be for a few months before this change starts to happen, but at least you know that it's not happened. Um, and so you can, you can try and put blocks in place to get there. Um, so I, I find that really important for me. Um, so with the skull work, often it's how it looks and feels. It's, they're, not, they're not kind of super secret things um you know you, you look at the scar and go nope that is still not sitting right there's still a big hole <laughs> there's still a big lump there mm-hmm. um, and do you think that the pain that you went through as a child and then through your early years do you think james that that is really that led you on this path of now being able to feel and in order in order to feel i think you have to have experienced something 
in helping others now? Yes, though what I think happens a lot of the time is when you're in pain, you you you, you know on, on um, smartphones they have kind of maps of places and you go sometimes to a new place that hasn't been put on the map yet. And so you're, you're looking on your phone and you're going, no, this place doesn't exist and you're looking at it and it's right in front of you. We do that with parts of our body. We demap them, we take them off the table. Um, so say your lower left back is, is painful, it's always painful. You just start to shut it out and ignore it. Um, and so part of the process is actually working through that and remapping your body and remapping the different parts of you so that they are actually things that you, you recognize on your map of you. Um, and then when you've done that, you can start to feel, you can start to experience them. Um, that's, that's actually a very interesting point in that we do tend to block out the things that are painful to us. And I wonder if that is part of the problem in our lives as human beings is that we don't actually deal with some things and therefore we can't ever find our way through life if we ignore it. And then there isn't that whole circumference of the map. That's why part of it is missing and that's why we can take the wrong turns in life. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, completely. And actually, it's that kind of logic, which is one of the big reasons I really like Xing Yi, um, because one of the main tra- training things in that is you stand still um, with, with one arm in the air, well, both arms in the air, one up high, one low, and then one foot forward, one foot back. And you stand in this position for a while. I mean, traditionally, it was an hour each side, but I don't have that much time in my day. But what it does is it forces you to face up to what's there. If you've got a really tight lower back, boy, you feel the tight lower back and you have to live through that and go, okay, is there any way of this not being tight? (laughs) And you see if there are bits of you you can let go so that the back will just release down. Um, And so it really forces you to be with yourself. In that way, you know, it's, it's, it's a... Often, often you experience it as extremely physical because it's quite, it can be quite, not painful, but intense. It, it really nails the bits that are stuck. Um, and then you have the opportunity to either work with them, sit with them and let them just change, or to run away and go and do something less uh, distressing like watching Netflix. Um, and I... I like the standing. I like actually sitting with them for a bit and letting them change because they often will just change. Once you start to to sit with them and look at them and go, okay. And you get that in sitting meditation as well. Um, You're sitting and sudden, I don't know, for me it's always sudden panic that some noise I've heard in the street that people are going to come into the house and they're going to come in and disrupt, disrupt me. Not even they're going to steal anything. They're just going to stop me meditating. And there's this complete irrational chain of thoughts that, that goes off just from the noise of a, do- a car door opening. Um, and you can sit with that and just let it pass. Because no, they didn't break in the front door and just come in and ask me what the time was. It didn't happen. It was all made up. But you you get to sit with that kind of discomfort, that that part of your reality that, 
doesn't feel amazing. You don't really love it, but it will dissipate. It will disappear on its own. Um, self-releasing is a word that they, is a word that they often use in the in the in the Tibetan stuff. That these things appear and then they just release of their own accord. And you don't need to go in and fix them. They just dissipate. They just go dissolve. Um, yes, releasing. Um, yeah. It's a big thing, and not everyone wants to do that. And sometimes to let go is actually the greater act of bravery than it is to hold on to something. Oh, yeah. And it's um, often harder to let go than it is to try and actively work with something. Yes. Often it's easier if you kind of mm. do a lot of things to try and deal with it. Whereas sometimes that works, but other times there's not anything to do. You just have to, to let, let it go. Um, you know, let go of that dream that you had, let go of that, that part of your life or that beautiful flat. I used to live in Chile and my flat had um, a glass front, um, east front that looked onto the Andes. Oh, um, how beautiful. I would wake up in the morning and the sun would be rising over the mountains and I would just sit up in bed and there they were, the Andes covered with snow with there were no condors usually, but let's pretend. But it was it was beautiful. You'd have this amazing view, and I'd get up and you know, walk through to the other room. The light would be coming through. Beautiful. There's nothing like that in London. <laughs> My, oh no, there isn't. How you know? beautiful! But you just have to let go. That that flat is gone. I'm not going to be living there again. You know, there are no mountains like that in the UK. There's nothing like that in Europe, really, even. it's so, They're so big. Um, you just let go and just be happy that it was there. But it's not, it's not there anymore. Um, and how do you do that? I mean, in the world as it is, yeah, it's, it seems a difficult task. Mm. It's, it's strange because this is the thing about the, the active and the passive, that we want to do something, we want actively to let go. And that's not what letting go is. is it? It's just, you just don't hold it anymore. You stop gripping. Mm. You think of a pencil or you're holding your hand. How do you let go of a pencil? You just stop gripping onto it. You stop that holding pattern that is, you know, you, you feel you have to maintain. And you just let your hand go floppy, just natural. And the pen, you let go. It's, it's, it's tricky. It's one of those things that, that I'm not sure I learned it from words. Um, I think it was much more, I learned it by, partly by picking it up, um, mm. just from like copying it, like um, from people's example or um, particular practices. And you suddenly just realize, oh, oh, that's what it is. You don't have to do anything. You just don't do anything. It's not so easy. I, I read somewhere, and I oh, don't I know. know. <laughs> it's very difficult um, at times. And I read somewhere the other day um, where I, I don't know who, who said this, um, but it was so poignant at the time that it is only something like 
human beings are the only ones who do not accept themselves completely mm. for who they are. And I think that's a great point. And this letting go has a lot to do with that, I think, James, where letting go of people's expectations, letting mm. go of what people think of us, yeah, performance, what we should be doing, what we could be doing, yeah. is all actually sort of a maelstrom of um, everybody else, everybody else out there, mm. as opposed to what do we want? What mm. gives us peace to do? Mm. And when you were talking to me about one of your um, energy arts, I thought this is really quite astounding in that it's in its presence of doing whatever you're doing in that moment, you can notice the pain, you can notice the tightness. Mm. And that is what I think society, and we're all guilty of it, is running, running, running away so far from ourselves mm. that we forget who we are. Yeah. Well, my teacher, one of the first things he said to me when I started doing Singhi was that Singhi is meant to take you back into the natural state. It returns mm. your body to its natural state. Um, yeah. Kind of not, I was going to say deconditions you, but it kind of strips it's like a varnish remover. It strips away all the varnish and just <laughs> leaves you with the, the, the actual real wood underneath. Um, yeah. And that's why a lot of people don't like it, <laughs> that particular art. Um, because it, it's yeah. so simple. It's so simple. It's like sitting meditation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people, some people struggle with it because there's almost nothing going on. And in some of the stuff that I do, there is really nothing going on um, at all. You're just sitting there, not even meditating. <laughs> um, and it's, I think it's partly just a particular way that we're wired. Some of us are wired, but mm. that's appealing. Um, because, but, yeah, it's, I, I just like it. I like that, that I was going to say bareness, but that makes it sound unwelcoming. It's just that simplicity, that lack of manufactured artifice. Mm. Um, mm. I understand. When you start to like that kind of natural look, let's call it that, um, mm. then suddenly all the varnished things don't look so good. Suddenly all those kind of strangely painted things, it's like, well, what was the wood like underneath? Why can't you just see that? And, you know, maybe it was horrible and it needed to varnish. But, you know, you get used to this bareness, this kind of natural state. Um, and it's kind of a little bit reflects back into my work um, of just doing very, very simple stuff and seeing if you can get things to shift into a, a just a more natural, less manufactured pattern of holding. I like that because it reminds me of a time, this varnish, what you speak about and this Peeling back the layers, I suppose, of falsehood, finding, you know, the essence of reality 
mm-hmm. um, that abides within all of us and reminds me I've spent many times um, on various different trips with Bedouins. And mm-hmm. I spent, goodness, many weeks, many months with them. But I always remember them going back into, as I say, um, the world, so to speak, that we mm-hmm. um, sort of live in and looking at everything and thinking, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> you know, what's this all about? Um, it becomes sort of comical in a way. Yeah. And totally absurd mm-hmm. and you think well this is just nonsense you know this isn't real yeah. um it's all sort of manufactured nothing's real and how people are behaving it's not real and it's not really who they are and yeah. and that shock um takes a little bit of getting used to but then you get into that mode as i'm sure you um, you will understand yeah. um you have to flick back into that mode but i totally understand it it somehow we don't have to go to the bedouins we don't have to go to the andes we um but we have to find that bareness it is a bareness it in a way it's an unbearable lightness of being oneself that I think at a point you have to accept mm. in order to be complete. It's authenticity. It's just accepting mm. you are the way that you are. Yeah. You have, you have things about you that are attractive and good and things about you which perhaps are less attractive <laughs> and less wonderful, but mm. still. <laughs> um, yeah, hey-ho. But, 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 taking away, <laughs> but taking away the element of, of always performing always only existing in other people's minds or in your own mind but but you're it's not it's not kind of just authentic it's not real it's 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 theater um and it's so scary to stop doing that because we've often done it our whole lives Mm. Mm. but i think it's more scary to do it to be of that theatre it's uh, it's a very strange drama sometimes and um you have to stand back and you have to laugh at yourself um and others I have to say who playing this part in your drama um and you have to laugh because I think it is really as they say a divine comedy the whole thing and we're just actors in this game so yeah. to speak um and the really enlightened souls are the ones who can really i suppose um detach from this madness here on earth and can really take themselves to another level where everything is really you can see everything as a theatrical sort of piece I remember my um, one of my teachers um, um, from Tibetan Buddhism um, says that you know why, why are you trying to impress the person next to you? They only exist in your imagination. That the person that you think they are is not the person that they think they are, and the person mm. that they think they are is not the person that they are. So it's all just in your head. Why? Why? Yeah. Are you so, so concerned <laughs> about these shadow puppets, your imaginary friends. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it, it's true. And and you know what, James? I, I, I suddenly realised this a few years ago where you think you know people, you know, people that you've known for a long time. And in fact, they do something completely bizarre <laughs> and you realise, well, who the hell are they? I never really knew them anyway. And that was such a big shock to me because I realised then that I don't really know anyone. And in a way, a, a form of liberation because yeah. nobody really knows me. Yeah. Including myself sometimes, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you realise this sort of frailty of, you know, the human being where we do have these imaginations about other people and, and, and you know, we think they're one type of person, but in fact, there's something completely different most of the time. Yeah, and often this, this imaginary view we have of other people and we have of ourselves stops us from engaging with them properly because True. it's our fantasy creation in, in engaging with their fantasy creation. Yes. And if we, if we just stop going, oh, well, I, I'm not the kind of person who does that and just so oh, okay, you know, I'll go to this music festival with you. Yeah, why not? Um, never been to one before, but well, I'll give it a go. Um, and just that kind of spontaneity of of not always just being the person that you think you are. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very good advice, actually. Um, because do things that you haven't done before. Yeah, because we often say, you know, oh, well, I'm, that's not me. I'm, that's not my kind of thing. And there's, there is often experience and wisdom there. Like, I'm a morning person. If you want me to stay up until four in the morning, then okay, but I'd rather get up at four in the morning. Um, you know, <laughs> that I just know from experience that I will be tired for four or five days afterwards. Yeah, um, yeah. There's yeah. that, which is just real from experience and people's individual wiring. And then there's the sort of self-restriction that we do, like, oh, I couldn't possibly go and meet that new person. I don't know them. I, I'm not very good with strangers. I'm not very good with... And you start to tell yourself all these stories that limit you. And, well, that, is that really who I am? Yeah. Is, is yeah. this pain I have in my back really who I am? No, it's not. It comes and goes. It's not me. It's a thing that happens. But that's, it, that's excellent advice because it is all passing. Yeah. And the, the you, the, the, the kind of feeling, there's a thing that, you, the thing that you do sometimes in one of the meditation practices where you kind of become aware of all these patterns that you're feeling. And you, you ask, is, is that me? Is, is that is a physical feeling? Is that me? Is that aching shoulder? Is that me? No, it's not me. That's not me at all. I'm not an aching shoulder. It wasn't aching yesterday. It won't ache in three months' time. That's not me. And you go through and you kind of, all these things that you tend to latch onto, um, you know, your, your weight or your whatever it is, that's not me. That changes. It's not always been like that. It will change in the future. Um, and you suddenly realise that most of the things that you think are you are not you at all. They're, they're kind of just things you're latching onto. Yes, they're sort of, I don't even know what they are when you think about it. Some are thoughts, some are feelings, and they're all momentary, fluttering yeah. by. Um, and I think you just have to let them flutter on by. 
most of the time. Uh, Pain is another thing, I think, because that can be very debilitating. But um, your pain is not you. It's just, I think, I say it's sort of a, I don't know, it's a teacher Mm. that teaches us. And until we've learnt the lesson, I don't think it goes. Mm. I don't think it does. Um, but that's another story for another day. Pain is a whole mm. other subject. Uh, and people have totally different relations to it. I had yeah. a woman a while back who used to come to me. She had um, like um, ankylosing spondylitis. So the bones in her spine were all starting to fuse together. Um, and she was just in a lot of pain all the time with no prospect of it going away. Mm. Um, and she would come and see me every six weeks or so because the work I could do up with her neck and skull would just take the pressure off enough that she didn't need to take the, the injections. Um, but her her relationship with pain was was just shocking to me because... I did something that I knew would have hurt her because it was the only way of getting something to change. And it didn't register in her face. And I said, did that hurt? And she said, yes. But not a movement, not a, you know, whereas if I, sometimes you could do something as quarter as, as uncomfortable and the mm. person would go, ah, 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 ah. And so our relationship with pain is completely individual. Um, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and completely. it is something that is a story in itself. Mm. I think our relationship with pain, and some people go through life and they never have pain. And then it's very difficult to talk to people who have pain with people who have never had pain. It's it's near enough really impossible, I think, yeah. for them. To, they can be sympathetic, of course, but they can never really understand. Like trying and, to describe a colour that they can't see. Yeah, or they've never seen red. Yeah. It, it's it's impossible. And I think it's a it's a really interesting subject, pain. Mm. And it's something that most people go through that it's very hidden. And I always look at people and I know a friend of mine and she said, oh, this person is happy and this person is happy and I'm so unhappy. And I always say, but you just don't know. Mm. You don't know what mask people are wearing. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they're hiding. You don't know yeah. what their suffering is. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I always look at people from that angle actually of I don't know what's actually disturbing your soul I don't know what's giving you torment yeah I don't know and I don't want to add to that torment Uh, if I can even feel you know a glimmer such as yourself James with your work even for a glimmer of a moment just give that person a hope to keep going Mm. I think it's so important in these times yeah and even if it's just kind of downgrading it a bit so that it's it's more manageable Mm. Um, Mm. I often often tell people that I'm like the good fairy in Sleeping Beauty 
that I, I can't get rid of the bad fairy's curse completely. Um, but you will not die. You will sleep for a hundred years. Um, and it will might, you know, hopefully will make it better, but it might not go. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a nice way. It's a genteel way. And that's, <laughs> that's what's, you know, it's true. It, it's what's missing, you know, so much now is this gentleness from people. And I think every single person and every single, whether, animal or flower or I have this love for birds and animals but you know everything you know wants to be healed everything wants this gentleness mm. but we're so far from it we're so far from it and we're so used to in a way like you were saying earlier block it out oh, we don't want gentleness. Well, because we can't have it. So, you know, we'll just pretend we don't want it. And then that in itself goes down a very slippery slope of mm. aggression and anger and bitterness and unhappiness. So I think what you're saying about the good fairy, I think that's a beautiful analogy. The good fairy, yeah. Yeah, the good fairy. That is beautiful, actually. <laughs> I'm going to remember that, you know, that is so lovely. How lovely is that? What a lovely thing to say. We would all love to be able to click our fingers and get rid of the problems. But it just rarely happens. Most therapists have a few stories of people they treated once and their person got better. And wow. But, but it's not normal. Yeah, um, it rarely is possible to make mm. a big difference that quickly. Um, it often will take a lot longer, or you'll get seventy percent improvement, and still there'll be thirty percent left that you know can't get rid of. What comes through very much through tonight's conversation, James, is the acceptance. There is a whatever you're talking about there is this sort of deep acceptance of unless we accept the state that we're in we can't heal from it Not completely yeah, yeah and that's coming through very loud and clear for me in that um it's difficult to accept of course um i understand that totally but unless we sort of accept ourselves in all our infinite glory and our infinite madness, I, I don't think that we can ever make that road to recovery somehow. Mm. You know, I totally agree. Um, if you can't, yeah, if you can't admit what's going on, then you're never going to deal with it. Mm. It's not, you know, there, some things will just disappear on their own so you you know like my my defrosting scars from the freezer they'll just disappear i don't need to do anything about them they'll be gone in a week's time they'll just disappear but there are other things that unless you you, know, you get a, uh, an infection unless you do something about that infection it may it might not go some of them will but others yeah. stick around and you need to have treatment for it 
Um, and if you're just in denial and no, 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 there's no, there's no problem. There, you get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker mm, mm. because you just won't acknowledge there's a problem. Um, yeah. And that's not very grown up, really. Not so easy. And I think what you said, again, with the good fairy is that at least they have people have somebody like yourself who makes the journey easier. I think that's the point. Mm. That it's it's a tough journey. It's not an easy journey. If you want to heal, if you want to be healed, if you want to be helped, you have to start on that journey. Mm. And all the better for being on a journey with someone such as yourself, who is there to comfort and to, in a way, guide people Mm. um, out of that one state into another state. So in in effect, like a bridge. Mm. so I think that's really important in you know in these times that we're in now where people are so distracted and it's a vicious cycle and I think somehow you bring them to that in a way sort of a grounding level yeah I I try (laughs) yeah I think Um. it's excellent and well done really I think it's wonderful work and, you know, I wish you all the best in it. But you must now, as we come to a close, um, tell everybody where they can contact you, where they can find out more about what you do. What's the best place? Um, the best place is my website. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just, I'm having one of those blonde moments and I forgot my website address. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the address is www, of course. Mm-hmm. Body Kinetics Therapy um, dot com. So Body Kinetics, mm-hmm. which is K I N E T I C S Therapy, or mm-hmm. just search for me, James Palmer, um, with scars or something like that, and you hopefully maybe would find me. Okay, so you are um, you have a practice, mm-hmm. and you're based in London. I am, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Shepherd's Bush mostly, and then a little bit in Finsbury Park at the moment. Okay, so people can contact you and um, make their way to you somehow and find out more about your work through your website. Yeah. And there are scar therapists elsewhere who've done similar, well, the scar, at least the scar training, because you know if you live in America, then it's not, you know, it's a bit far. Um, but there are people who do some, who do some similar work work it's not exactly the same um mm-hmm. but you know, it's not just me who works with scars okay so for people because we've got listeners everywhere all over the world so people that are interested in this what sort of things should they um look up if they're not in the uk um, try sharon wheeler's scar work mm-hmm. so sharon okay. is sharon wheeler and then w-h-e-e-l-e-r and then scar work <laughs> Um, and you might find that there's somebody near you who's trained in it. And they will they will at least be able to help you with the scar and the immediate area around it. Um, and very often they've got more training and they can do a lot more. Um, but, yeah, that's probably your best bet. Okay, and people that are in the UK, they can contact yourself. Yeah. Um, Excellent. And if I'm too impossible to get to, I can try and find someone for you to go to. But 
Okay. It, it's such a it's such a needed work, and it's um, so important. I think for people out there to get to somebody like you because um, people don't even know that this type of work. I think a lot of people don't even know that it exists. No, they really don't. Um, and, and that's why it's important to get your message across. Yeah. They don't know it exists. And they also, if you tell them they don't believe you, <laughs> you know, you tell people, oh, yeah, I can probably help you with that scar. And they say, well, it's 40 years old. And, yeah, I can probably help you with that scar. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I always ask my guests this, James, before you leave, in a couple of lines, something that has helped you in your life, some words of wisdom oh. for people out there oh my brain's gone blank <laughs> <laughs> no you have to it's no excuse no 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 let off um <laughs> i don't know i, I suppose <laughs> don't try and impress, impress people you don't like you know we, we live so much of our lives faced for other people um and so much of our energy is spent on on trying to perform it just doesn't get you anywhere. You end up surrounded by people who, who don't really know you as who you are. Um, and you, you spend a lot of energy and time and you end up with nothing for it. Good advice, actually. Very good advice. And you spend your life living for people that you don't really care about anyway. Yeah. And they don't you, care about you. Well, they don't know you because you're pretending to be somebody else. True, true. It's really good advice, though. It's to be true to yourself, ultimately, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, James, for coming Lovely. on again. It's been fascinating to talk to you. And please do come back again sometime oh, and um, share all your wisdom about. I'd love to know more about all these sort of healing arts, you know, the Asian healing arts and mm. all of that. I think that's a fascinating subject as well. Yeah. Certainly. Oh, well, I wish you all the very best. And whatever is left of, you know, London's evening, I wish <laughs> you a very peaceful evening. Thank you very much. All right. You take care of yourself. Good. Good night. Okay. Bye. 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 James Palmer. A pleasure to have somebody so knowledgeable on the show. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today on what I hope will be of some help to you, wherever you are. Look after yourselves. Until next time, take care and lots and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website www.miminovic.co.uk